walked in and said, I want this test. Testing was brand new and it was controversial. It was very controversial. When cancer genetic testing opened up, there was huge concerns about the ethical, legal, and social implications. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. What we don't remember is that before genetic testing, people just took a stab in the dark. You know, over time, you know, we went from having tens of patients to hundreds of patients to thousands of patients. That system becomes really untenable. So we wanted to make something that was scalable and digital and that really would kind of mine the information from genetic counseling sessions. Ellen Matloff is a certified genetic counselor and the founder of MyGene Council, a digital health company that provides individuals with ongoing evidence-based information related to their genetic test results. She is also a monthly contributor to Forbes. Ellen has been working in the field of genetic counseling for 25 years. For 18 of those years, she was the director of the Cancer Genetic Counseling Program at Yale School of Medicine. Ellen has authored more than 50 scientific publications in the field and was one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit against Myriad Genetics, the 2013 BRCA patent case that reached the United States Supreme Court and ended up opening up commercial BRCA testing to a lot of other companies. Ellen, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking oh, to me. Thank you for having me, Eleanor. Glad to be here. So we have talked a little bit just since we both started our companies, but I've actually never heard from you how you got into genetic counseling in the first place. Hmm. So I got into genetic counseling because when I was an undergrad, I found myself drawn to biology classes but both of my parents are physicians, and I knew that I did not want to be a physician just based on you know, lifestyle issues that I had seen having a mom who was an OBGYN and a father who was a surgeon. And then when I took- Is lifestyle issues code for working constantly? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and taking weekend and evening call, I just wanted something different. Uh-huh. And so I took a class in genetics and it really resonated with me. Just, I, I had remembered from high school really liking, it sounds so nerdy, but I really loved like Punnett squares and pedigrees and just thought uh-huh. it was awesome. And then in college, when we were diving deeper into those areas, I thought, wow, I think this is my thing. And a genetic counselor came and spoke to the class. And I thought, I've got to learn more about this. And when I... And that was, sorry, that was in college that a genetic counselor yeah, spoke to the class? It was my sophomore year in college at Union College in Schenectady, New York. And I went and spent some time with genetic counselors and shadowed them. And then I actually spent an entire year doing an internship at a local medical center and really felt like this was for me. Yeah. 
So it's been a while now that you haven't been in clinical practice, mm. but you've had so much experience over the years. And with all of that time, what are some of the patient stories that have really stuck with you? Mm. There are so many, as you, I'm sure, know yourself. But I, I think looking back, probably one of the stories that made the greatest impact was the very first patient I saw who had BRCA1 and 2 testing. Mm -hmm. And I think people who've entered the field later kind of don't realize what a big deal it was when testing became available and all of these people who had watched generations of their family die of breast or ovarian cancer, we finally had like a test we could offer them to give them more information about whether they were at risk. and. When the testing became available, I had an outreach clinic in Greenwich, Connecticut, and one of the very first patients who showed up was this 30-something Jewish woman, very smart, very well-educated, who walked in and said, I want this test. And I kind of did a, whoa, whoa, let's take your pedigree. Let's talk about the risks and benefits. Because remember, this testing was brand new and it was controversial. It was very controversial. And what year was this? This was 1996. Okay. And so she kind of politely sat there and answered my questions and listened to my whole spiel and we had her blood drawn. I took it back on the train with me, took, dropped it off at Yale. And about, I don't know, maybe three weeks later, the lab director knocked on the door to my tiny little office and said, that sample you brought us is BRCA1 positive. And I was floored, absolutely shocked, because it was the first one I'd ever done. Mm -hmm. And the night before, I was up the entire night thinking about what will I say to her? What will she say to me? And I read through the materials that were available, but there weren't many materials available on how to handle this kind of thing because it was brand new. And I went down there. I was completely juiced up. She walked in, she sat down, and I must have looked very nervous when I told her, you carry a mutation in BRCA1 because she leaned across the table and put her hand on my hand and said, it's gonna be okay to me, wow. <laughs> to me, the genetic yeah. counselor. And she said, I already know what I'm gonna do. I have a plastic surgeon. I've got an appointment in three weeks. I'm gonna have a consult and then have a bilateral mastectomy. And I was like, whoa, let's take six months and you can see a psychologist and you can think about it, which that was what we told people then. Like that was yeah. the protocol. And she said the following to me, which made it so simple. And I've used this story in a lot of lectures because people just didn't understand like why a healthy person would have a healthy part of their body removed. Mm -hmm. She said, my grandmother didn't make it to my mother's high school graduation. And my mother didn't make it to my high school graduation. I have two little girls at home and I'm gonna make it to their high school graduation. I'm also going to go to their weddings and I'm gonna know my grandchildren. This is the easiest decision I've ever made. Hmm. And that stuck with me. And I am, I mean, I imagine, you know, the, 
the part about asking patients to think about it in six months and talk to a psychologist, she'd probably been thinking about these sort of options her whole life. <laughs> she had. <laughs> yeah. She had. And what we don't remember is that before genetic testing, people just took a stab in the dark. So I had a lot of patients who had already had bilateral mastectomies based on their family histories alone without knowing if they actually carried the mutation in the family. Yeah. And so for her, having this added layer like, okay, confirmed, you are at high risk, that was all that she needed. And, you know, ironically, when I left Yale, we had an event because it was around the time one of the movies was being released. Um, trying to remember which one, I guess it doesn't matter, but we had like a public screening of it at a local movie theater. Mm -hmm. And I was standing there and kind of saying goodbye to a lot of these patients I'd followed for decades. And she walked up to me with a woman next to her. And she said, Ellen, you probably don't remember me. And I said her name, like I <laughs> completely remembered her. And the woman standing next to her was her little girl all grown up and healthy and no one had developed cancer. It was really, really meaningful. Did you ever see or do you know if other genetic counselors there saw her daughters for counseling? You know, I don't. She lived far away. She okay. um, lived about 90 minutes away and had driven up really to say goodbye, I think. Um, so I don't know if she would have gotten care for her daughters more locally. Yeah. Um, that's interesting that, you know, in the time where there was more hesitancy around doing testing in the first place and a lot more pause before any major surgical decisions, you had a patient, you know, who came in and so kind of sure of what she wanted. I wonder in the time that you saw patients at Yale, just in all the time you've been in practice, have you seen a, a shift in that? Like, was she more atypical for her time and more typical now? Or is it, mm. is it more the clinician attitudes that have changed and <laughs> patients are maybe um, less changed? The clinician attitudes have definitely changed. Um, I can remember when I came to Yale and I moved to Connecticut for the job, and so my whole life changed and I was starting fresh and I was speaking at a group of research physicians and nurses and telling them about this program I was developing and how much I was looking forward to working with them and here's what we were gonna do. And there was silence. And a research nurse raised her hand and when I called on her, she said, what you're suggesting is the mutilation of our patients and I think it's disgusting. Mm. And so, yes, I think there's been a huge shift in how clinicians feel about genetic counseling and testing, but also a huge shift in what the general population knows about it and how they feel about it. Because the original patients really did not get supported um, by other people and the general population and even in their own families that it really seemed like something extreme that no one really understood, like why they were doing oh, such a thing. I, I can remember one woman telling me that her in-laws said, you just wanted a boob job. Hmm. And it was really horrible. You know, we had these support groups and people would come and tell their stories of what coworkers said and what family members said. And 
they were not supported, many of them. I still hear that occasionally from patients, just like the boob job comment. And I'm I'm always surprised by it. And then it just kind of reminds me that I'm not really talking to typical people. <laughs> I'm probably talking yeah. to people who are more aware. And so sometimes I start to think of, you know, knowledge, basic knowledge about BRCA mutations as being more more prevalent, more available than it than it really is to some people still. I think that's probably true, but boy, there has been a sea change in the last 20 years. It's so much better now than it used to be. Yeah. Um, and then you spent most of your most of your years in clinical practice were at Yale, right? Correct. And did you see so you were seeing, I'm guessing mostly patients for BRCA mutations or family history of breast and ovarian cancer, but sometimes family history of colon cancer, other cancers also? A lot of other cancers also. Um, there was a huge thyroid thyroid cohort when I arrived. Um, so I did a little bit of everything, but yeah, probably mostly breast, ovarian, colon. And one patient story that I think you've written a blog post about is a patient with a mutation in the Grim one gene. Yes. His first name was Nate. Great kid, you know, young, healthy looking, athletic, had had it all. And he was at college and wasn't feeling well. And his dad convinced him to just, you know, go and get a physical, make sure everything is okay. And I think some baseline blood work led him outside of the college to a primary care physician who was concerned about some things he was seeing. And see, so he ordered a scan. So sadly, he found out that he had metastatic cancer. And his doctor basically said, you need to call your parents and have them come get you. And like, you're not coming back to college, um, which you can only imagine how devastating a call that was for him to make to his parents and for his parents to get. And they came and got him and he did everything, did every potential treatment, but it was really just a matter of time. And so one of his big goals was he found out that he had a distant family history of cancer and he wanted to get to the bottom of it for other family members and also to kind of make a contribution to science. So Nate really wanted to pursue genetic testing and we tested him for all the available genes at, available at the time and he came back true neck well he came back negative and we knew it was uninformative. And so unfortunately he died um, within the year and I was really determined in his honor that we would find whatever mutation was causing the colon cancers and the polyposis in his family. And so we had a fellow who was working in genetics and he had picked up a couple of charts, like what are your unsolved mysteries? Mm -hmm. And he had read an article about an Ashkenazi Jewish mutation in a gene called GREM1, and he just decided to test Nate's sample. And he called me up and was like, hey, you know this case, I think I found the mutation. And he was definitely not prepared for my response. He was a pathologist, so kind of quiet, like not a big people person. 
and I started yelling, I started crying. I mean, it was just this whole thing. And I made him verify it. And when he was absolutely sure that was it, I contacted Nate's dad and said, I think we finally have an answer. And it was like a Friday night at nine o'clock after I'd put my daughter to bed. And we were both very emotional about it on the phone. But you know how it is. There are those cases like that that you'll remember for the rest of your life. And that was certainly one of them. Yeah. And you used the term before that I think some listeners or probably most listeners aren't familiar with, the non-genetic counselors, when you said that you knew that his genetic testing results were uninformative when they mm. were negative, meaning that you were you were certain that there was a mutation that could be found that would explain this. Right. So because Nate was in his early 20s when he was diagnosed with colon cancer and because he had a really striking family history of early onset colon cancer but also of polyposis so Meaning like a lot of polyps a lot of, a lot polyps. of colon polyps okay and so when i looked at his family history his pedigree it was just clear that this was not just bad luck this was not chance alone something hereditary had happened here and when he came back negative for all of the genes that we could test for at the time, I knew that it meant we had missed something. Mm -hmm. And do you know what happened afterward in terms of once you identified that mutation uh, in Nate's sample, if other family members went on to have testing and how that impacted the family? Or did you not get that sort of follow-up? Oh, no, I certainly did. We had several, like, Nate days in his honor where all of the family members traveled from three states and came to Yale and we got blood samples on all of them and they all got genetic counseling. We also had a dermatologist come and we did like derm exams and we wrote the whole thing up. So yes, I, I do know what happened and the family is really close. And I think they all felt that this was something they were doing for Nate. And, you know, they were then followed closely. People really bought in. Mm -hmm. And were there a number of family members who were tested and were negative and so didn't need that surveillance and were kind of pleasantly surprised to learn that their risks were lower? There were some um, about what you would expect by chance alone. We also had a lot of people who tested positive because we knew what the pedigree looked like and who had polyposis. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, those people weren't exactly 50% risk. Um, right. We knew that they were at higher risk because of their polyp history. GRIM1 is probably a gene that not very many listeners have heard of. If someone has colon cancer in their family at this point, is that something that you would routinely recommend to people or only when they have colon cancer and polyposis? Just I'm thinking of like a listener who's thinking like, oh, I had genetic testing done. I don't know if that was included. <laughs> it's mm. generally not thought to be very common, right? To be honest with you, I'm not sure that we know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the problem with a lot of these genes that we just don't have a track record with is that a lot of it is guessing, right? We don't know exactly how common or exactly what the um, what we call phenotype or what the physical manifestation of the syndrome is. Um, and so I guess I would say 
If you have a striking personal and family history that includes colon cancers, particularly at young ages, and also people with polyps in the family, and in Nate's family, people had somewhere between five polyps and as many as 50 polyps removed over the course of their life. I would say just make sure that you check in with a genetics professional to see if there are any genes that have been added to the testing panel since you've had testing. You know, I, I think back to people who we tested 20 years ago or 25 years ago who came back negative at the time, and we know that testing has changed so much. We're going to have to revisit some of those families over time and offer them more current offerings, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and how do you, um, thinking about how to reach those patients and how to go back and just the way we've done genetic counseling and testing and the way things have are starting to be done now, <laughs> mm. how have you kind of seen all of that shift and change over the time that you've been in the field? So when I was at Yale, we had a log book. You're, you're going to love this. It was paper, <laughs> of course. Right. And we had a column at the end that said, uninformative, question mark. And if you thought the patient's personal and family history was so striking that when they tested negative, you were still suspicious that you had missed something, you checked it off. And so that was our very rudimentary way of whenever new testing came out, which happened all the time, we could go back to that uninformative column and in a fairly, you know, fast way, at least find who we should recontact and let them know that more testing was available. Mm -hmm. But, you know, over time, you know, we went from having tens of patients to hundreds of patients to thousands of patients. That system becomes really untenable. And it was one of the things that got me thinking about what kind of a scalable updating system do we need to create in the future as the field of genetics gets bigger? And that was one of the things that led me to come up with my gene council. Yeah. And before we hop into that, as you're talking about that system, can you just review what was it like then in terms of your process of getting people that initial testing? Um, like I had a classmate who did her summer internship at Yale. It was just in 2010, and I remember she loved it. And I think that there were two or maybe three appointments at the time, like one, like two appointments before patients got any testing done, and then one post-test. Is that right? There were, yeah. Okay. So you can imagine things changed, and a big part of that had to do with, and I think this is a good thing, but when cancer genetic testing opened up, there was huge concerns about the ethical, legal, and social implications of doing genetic testing on people, finding that they were at high risk for something like cancer, and giving that in them that information. Would their insurance company, discri company discriminate against them? Would their job discriminate against them? Could they even potentially commit suicide? And so, Everything was set up with the utmost of caution that we want to make sure these patients are consented accurately and that we are ordering the right test 
And so, yes, we would see them twice before genetic testing. And at the second appointment, that's when we would, you know, draw their blood, do their consent forms and fill out all of the testing paperwork. So the first the first appointment was just to get the family history and talk about testing as a as an option. And then they're supposed to go home and think about it. They were supposed to go home and think about it. And we also met about every single case as a team just to make sure that we agreed on what testing they should have and what our approach should be. Okay. And then they would come back into the office for an in-person appointment to get the test results, whether they were positive or negative. Correct. Mm -hmm. So things have really changed, as you know. Yeah. Now, yeah, now I feel like it's common to call out test results or maybe only have patients come in if they're positive, although, of course, that means still giving the positive results over the phone. <laughs> it does. Um, yeah. And I, to be honest, I think there are pros and cons. And, you know, I think back to one woman, um, and this was a story told to me by a colleague who said that a patient was being tested for a familial BRCA mutation and had an appointment date and time to come back and get the results. But this colleague, if the patient tested true negative, would often call them out just so the patient got that information as soon as possible. So she ended up calling this woman on a late on a Friday afternoon and the woman was furious. It was her son's wedding the next day. She was at or going to um, like a night before party. Mm -hmm. And she said, this is not what I want to be thinking about right now. My sister tested positive. I tested negative. I'm feeling badly about it. It's going to color my whole evening. This weekend was about my son's wedding. So I do think there were some advantages to having people know when they'd get their test result. They could, you know, kind of mentally prepare toward that date. They could bring a support person. They weren't driving down the throughway going, you know, 75 miles an hour when you called them on the phone and gave them their result. So I still think there are pros and cons. Yeah, yeah. It seems like even if they were called out to have a specific time could be helpful, time mm. and date. Or um, I think sometimes genetic counselors, or at least like working in prenatal, often it would be a question of asking, I would ask patients like how they would like to get their test results. But in this case, it mm. seems like the patient had a, expectation that she was going to receive these results on a certain day <laughs> and that didn't happen. Right. So my understanding is that when you were at Yale, you were pretty adamant about patients being referred to genetic counseling before having testing done. Um, and I think it was a, like when I was starting in genetic counseling, I graduated in 2011. That was or I think early on the end of switching over to physicians ordering testing on their own more and more. Um, and I think like from our conversations, I think your perspective about that has changed over time. So I'm just curious, like how, how, you know, like you say, there's pros and cons, but how have, how do you see that differently now than you did, um, several years ago? I, in some ways I view the progression in the field, both with clinicians ordering their own testing, but also with things like direct to consumer testing and 23andMe and, Ancestry.com, when people say to me, how do you feel about it? The way I feel about it is I feel like that's reality. I, I think that genetic testing has become far more popular and wide, 
spreading than maybe we'd ever imagined. And so this is how things have progressed. I think there are both pros and cons of all of these new testing modalities and how it's being handled and really what our job is to figure out like, okay, if this is the way it is now, what can we do to make sure that patients and providers get the right information and use the genetic testing appropriately? And is that a lot of what inspired you to start MyGene Council four years ago? It is. It is. We had seen and documented some really bad things that happened to patients when their test results were misinterpreted by well-meaning clinicians. And as you know, we documented everything from people having the wrong prophylactic surgeries or to people being diagnosed with cancers at very late stages because they were told they were at low risk when in fact they were at high risk. And so my gene council part of what you part of what my gene council does is provide updated information to patients about their test results, right? Like how talk to me about how that actually works practically. Yeah, sure. So we wanted to make something that was scalable and digital and that really would kind of mine the information from genetic counseling sessions that is so critical and that really only people who've worked in the field and seen hundreds or thousands of patients would kind of know these deep insights. We wanted to take those insights and make them scalable to a much bigger population. And so if you're a patient and you've had genetic testing either through your doctor at a company like Myriad Genetics or Ambry Genetics, or maybe you've done it on your own and gone to 23andMe or Ancestry.com, you can bring your cancer test result to MyGeneCouncil and you can upload your test result and we will link your result to updating digital genetic counseling content that matches your results. And it matches it not only by gene, but by the variant in the gene too. And so it's very specific to you. And it will link you to information that very much reads like a genetic counseling session. And we now have parallel information for your healthcare provider. And I think one thing that makes it unique is that every time something critical changes in the field, we update the MyGeneCouncil streams and you receive a push notification. Hmm. So if you're the patient and you had testing 10 years ago and you saw a genetic counselor but you've never been back, this is a way that you can ensure that you and your family members are getting the latest and the greatest. And you just launched this last June, is that right? The product went live in the marketplace in August 2018. Okay, okay. okay. Um, and I'm curious, like how, what, as you were going through the process of getting this ready, um, is there anything you started out thinking would work really well that you absolutely changed your mind on or after launching, were you surprised about any of the reactions, like something mm. that people wanted that you didn't have available or something you thought was like maybe very basic that you were surprised that people found so helpful? 
Yeah, there there have been a lot of surprises. And, you know, from the beginning, one thing we did that was smart was we brought patient advocates on to review the materials and to go through it and to give us feedback. And that's been enormously helpful. So one piece of information that came out that we hadn't foreseen was that patients wanted a section of my gene council that gave them every single name for the variant found in their DNA. So there's a lot of confusion about that. And as you well know, our nomenclature means that two different labs could call the exact same variant by slightly different names or sometimes drastically different names. Mm -hmm. So they wanted that information. And they also wanted a lot of information specific to their variant, even if that information was still evolving. They wanted to know how it's evolving and Mm -hmm. what do we know so far. Um, They've also been very interested in the support information, which you might think that if you're not sitting or speaking to a genetic counselor live over the phone, that how can you support them? Like how could you support them with a digital product? But they've found that a lot of the support and resource materials have been helpful. So learning something new every day, I have to tell you. Cool. And is do you have a you you mentioned that you have a parallel product for clinicians? Is that yes. only available to clinicians of patients who are enrolled or have have purchased this product, or is that available to like a clinician who's lis- who's listening who would want that kind of product for their practice? So the clinician product is rolling out early this year, and it will be available to both. It will be available either because you have a patient who's a MyGene Council customer and they've sent you their information, but also we can sell it to health plans, to individual group practices, even individual physicians, but as well as hospital networks. And so much like other tools that for those of us who've worked at hospitals and academic centers, you know you get a whole suite of tools this could be one of those tools that you have access to. Of the consumers who use MyGeneCounsel, do you have a sense of how many of those patients had genetic testing done through a genetic counselor as opposed to a physician, as opposed to direct-to-consumer testing like 23andMe or Ancestry DNA or something like more clinical, like color? Hmm. So I would say that of the consumers currently using MyGeneCounsel, probably about... of them had genetic testing through a traditional clinical grade laboratory, and maybe 40% of them used a direct-to-consumer option, whether that be something like 23andMe or Color. And of those patients, we don't have a good sense, at least I don't off the top of my head, how many of them had a genetic counselor involved in their care. Um, So that's kind of still evolving. Okay. Um, and I, I wonder, do you, in, with these consumers um, who've had direct consumer testing done, do you have a sense of how many think that they've had more comprehensive clinical testing done when they ordered the Ancestry or 23andMe testing, um, as opposed to ones who, you know, ordered it because of curiosity about Ancestry and then happened to find a mutation in a BRCA gene, like a founder mutation? Mm-hmm. 
so far, it appears that most of the people using my gene council um, had a family history that led them to have testing. But mm -hmm. there are also some people who it's all been a surprise. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a bit of each. So with this kind of where you are now with your company and like more insight and direct consumer testing and, and plus like all of your past experience, I'm wondering how do you anticipate that genetic testing and genetic counseling and the role of a genetic counselor is going to continue to evolve? I think it's going to evolve quite a bit, not only because of direct to consumer testing, but because of large population studies like all of us. And for people who are listening and haven't heard of all of us, the NIH is sponsoring a large 1 million person trial here in the United States. And through that trial, people can get genetic testing for free. And there are many other studies, including one that's going to launch here in Connecticut, that are going to be offering the same. And so I think that the day, um, the days in which every single person sits down with a certified genetic counselor and discusses the risks and the benefits and the limitations before testing, and then sits down with them again after testing to go over those, their results. I think that for the majority of people, those days are gone. And it will only be a handful of people, likely people who've already had testing and who have a pathogenic finding or a finding that puts them at high risk to develop a disease who will sit down with a certified genetic counselor and that we're going to have to find other scalable, efficient and accurate ways of helping the rest. What do you think? Do you agree with that or do you disagree, Eleanor? Yeah, I, I pretty, pretty much. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and then, and then like the specifics, um, I wonder more about the specifics, which is just like, how, you know, like, how do we do that? Um, and what are, you know, what are the best ways to do it and how to filter things? And like you said, how to keep it efficient. Um, and then, you know, like living in a capitalist society where things are, you know, you have to make a profit and the labs, you know, obviously, um, I think I like actually like tend to be pretty patient centered in a lot of ways, but still there's always the bias toward more testing. Um, as long as it's in the private sector, which I feel like it will probably continue to be. And then that kind of leaves the room for marketing to maybe overemphasize the utility of genetic testing, um, which I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess I worry a little bit about the limitations of, of testing and mm. value of family history being underemphasized just because we're in a society and an economy where you have to sell a product. Hmm. Um. I do worry about that too. And I was just looking at a website the other day that not only did genetic testing, but sold all these formulations. If you, you know, find that you carry certain genetic changes and it makes me crazy. I mean, we have like, like, like supplements. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that particularly for people who are scared and who are desperate that they may turn to some of these things. And I guess you could argue, hey, they get to make an informed decision. I guess my problem is I'm not sure how informed the decisions always are. 
you know, some of these websites are really glossy looking and I think people figure this must be regulated, you know, right. when in fact it, it isn't. Right. Yeah, I would like there to be, I think genetic testing reports just in the time that I've been in genetic counseling have gotten like more legible, more clear, both for physicians and by extension to patients. But I guess I just hope that that continues to be a trend Hmm. Um, because I do think it should be something more understandable. There was a story, um, you probably remember this story. I don't remember when, maybe at least a year ago that got a lot of traction in the GC community, at least. And it was a patient in Oregon. Oh, yes. Yeah, who had, maybe you can remind me, she had... Maybe she had a Lynch syndrome mutation, but she had a prophylactic mastectomy done. There was definitely a misunderstanding of her results. I think what she really had was a variant of uncertain significance that was interpreted as pathogenic for Lynch syndrome. Okay. And they had her remove both breasts, her uterus, and her ovaries. And she has had, last I had heard, dozens of surgeries. She had infections. She had... Her reconstructions didn't work. I mean, she's really suffered as a result of this. Yeah, so like that story, I feel like the way I saw it covered um, was we need more genetic counselors, (laughs) which as a genetic counselor, that's sort of nice to hear. Hmm. But I kind of felt like, well, we need more access to our own medical records. Hmm. (laughs) Just there wasn't anything that I saw relating to whether or not the patient received a copy of her own test report. And I know variants of uncertain significance are drive people crazy and genetic counselors have, are, I think are getting more used to dealing with them and physicians traditionally, of course, don't like them. Um, but I mean, it's called a variant of uncertain significance. I feel like that's fairly clear <laughs> in an English language way. And I, I just wonder, you know, if that patient, if she'd seen her report, if she hadn't understood it differently, if she would have at least, you know, gotten another opinion or just even turned to a friend, you know, mm. someone maybe she she knew that was, you know, more educated or worked in healthcare and just said, hey, look at this. Like they said, this is a mutation. Like, what do you think? Boy, um, I wish I thought that were true, but look at how poorly healthcare <laughs> providers understand a variant of uncertain significance. It's very true. Uh, you know, I mean, I guess I don't think we can put that on the consumer, like that you've got to be able to understand this just based on a lab report. I think we need to give them tools that make it more clear. And yeah. I'm, I'm not even sure that we can ask the labs to make those reports as clear and as comprehensive as they would need to be for someone to make an informed decision. Um, I just don't know that that's the lab's job. I mean, by necessity, they have to be more technical. But Mm. it seems like a lot of labs are including more language now and explanations on the reports that help. Um, Yeah, I definitely agree that it shouldn't, the onus shouldn't be on the patient, but it's just... Um, just as a, like, as a patient myself, I just, I'm always, every time I'm in the healthcare system, I'm like, wow, it's really hard to get a hold of your own medical records. <laughs> it sure is. It sure is. And it doesn't have to be that way. So just like thinking about the genetic counseling profession, do you have any like ideas as to like specific ways that genetic counselors could be better used or just ideas about how we should be mm-hmm 
training new genetic counselors differently or how we ourselves should be more adaptable and flexible um, to better Mm. meet patient needs. And also I think maybe to have like more job satisfaction. Like I, I like personally, like I like meeting with patients who want to meet with me. (laughs) I remember like sometimes in a clinic setting, you know, you have a patient who's showing up because they were referred, but they don't want to be there. Um, And, you know, they already know they want the test and they're pretty informed. And like, that's not the best job satisfaction, really. (laughs) Hmm. That's an interesting question. I mean, I guess I think in terms of the field of genetic counseling, one thing that needs to happen is that we need to be attracting more diverse candidates to the field, not only in terms of we need more men, we need more people of you know, who are from different ethnic backgrounds. But I think we need people with different life experiences so that people, you know, I went to graduate school when I was 22 and was straight out of college and had no life experience, but I've been- Bio bio major psych minor. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. Um, And just recently I was working with someone who for the last 30 years has worked in the pharmaceutical industry and now wants to go back and be a genetic counselor. And I've worked now with several genetic counselors who have MBAs. And I think some of these people with diverse experiences and backgrounds can really help us elevate the field and innovate within the field. Because one of the things that's been disappointing to me over the last 25 years is to see that even though genetic counselors do a lot of the work Genetic counselors, in my opinion, don't get a lot of the credit and they don't get the higher salaries. I think it leads many of them to burnout and to leave the field and feel unappreciated. I think Mm -hmm. that needs to change and that we can use genetic counselors in different roles and to make some of the leadership decisions in hospital systems, but also within insurance plans, within pharmaceutical companies, Um, within genetic testing companies. I mean, it's fascinating to me with some of these DTC genetic testing companies. If you go to their very fancy schmancy websites, you have to look on like page 10 to find a genetic counselor. They have Mm -hmm. all of their tech people and, you know, all of these management people, but where's the genetic counselor? And I think that's why they're making some of the decisions they're making is because they're not well informed about genetic testing, ironically. Mm -hmm. So I I think that infusing the very deep and specific knowledge base that genetic counselors have into industry is really going to be critical for not only industry, but for the field. Yeah. And on the other side, what do you wish, because I know you and I have talked uh, previously about direct-to-consumer testing and genetic counselors uh, wringing their hands over it sometimes. Mm. And, you know, like I've heard you say, like the the horse is out of the barn. (laughs) Yes. Um, What do you wish that genetic counselors understood about direct-to-consumer testing and um, consumers' Uh, interest in in this whether than rather than you know like booking an appointment with a genetic counselor for instance hmm. yeah I I think first of all that if you had asked me about this seven years ago I would have said oh my gosh that testing is worth worthless 
it's not even like worth our time. Let's throw it in the trash. And I've learned a lot in the last seven years. And I've learned that some people are getting life saving results from these direct to consumer tests that they may have never otherwise gotten and we can't ignore them anymore. And so I guess what I would say to genetic counselors, I know that change is painful and I feel your pain on that, but we are the ones who have the most baseline knowledge about genetic testing in general in order to really understand these test results and to counsel consumers about them most appropriately. And 15 million people have done this. And within three years, it's estimated that 100 million people will have taken this testing. So be smart, learn about this, get involved. This, it's the future of your field. Um, so jump on the bandwagon now. On the flip side, um, for people who li are listening who are not genetic counselors um, and have done direct-to-consumer testing or have thought about it or maybe got it as a Christmas gift, um, what do you wish that those consumers understood about direct-to-consumer testing? Before they do the test or after? Uh, ideally before and otherwise after. Mm. <laughs> so I, I would just say before you do the testing, it really does make sense to at least read an article that outlines the risks and benefits of testing. I know we have one on our blog. It wouldn't surprise me, Eleanor, if you have one on yours. Um, I don't, oh, I you don't, don't think we do. I'll definitely include yours in the show notes. Okay. But it's important for you to understand, first of all, the privacy issues around direct-to-consumer testing, as well as some of the incidental findings you may learn, whether they're medical, or whether they're about family members, like some of the unexpected information that you could get and what other people could get about you. Um, and I would say you should at least know how your data could potentially be used. And so we have like a nice overview article of the pros and cons. I would say read that before you send your DNA sample in. And if you've already done the testing, there are a couple of things I think you should know. First of all, this direct-to-consumer testing is not as comprehensive as a likely a medical genetic test on the same topic. So if you did this test because you have a really striking personal or family history of cancer or cardiac disease or Alzheimer's disease, this is probably not the best way for you to get comprehensive medical information. That being said, if you've received some information and you're unclear about it, there are ways that you can get help. And before you take whatever your result is as the final, remember, you will actually need to repeat it in a clinical laboratory. This testing is not intended for medical use. It's not medical grade. It's not as comprehensive. But you may, you know, some people find, get a finding that they can use that can help them and help their family members. So it makes sense to explore it. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to greatgenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you haven't already, you can also check out our Patient Stories Companion Project, where many patients have shared their stories in written form. 
As always, if you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at greatgenetics.com. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Great Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.